Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Your perfume is still up my hoodie. I play the beast and you play the beauty. Oh, and just like you said, I'm all about that booty. Maybe you and I could be each other's groupies. Pretend it's only me and you for the day. Lay in bed and just play hooky. I love the way you wear my hoodie and I, I love the way it smells. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your pretentious and sophomore host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Daniel White-Hodge. Daniel is the Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications at North Park University. He is also an author, podcaster, and expert on the intersection of faith, youth, and hip-hop. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Freshbrook. Freshbrook is a solo experimental hip-hop artist. You can get connected with both Daniel and Freshbrook and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Hotter than the sauna in the middle of the summer Searching for that Lana, that bummer Belladonna extract from my haters Y'all sit in the blood, no fakers I can picture it all now We in my head the way I'll feel When the crowds cheer until they dead Third eye blind man, it made me want to fly So the Sugar Ray, motherfucking 90s till I die Why the fuck did Bono say guitar say?
Today we have Daniel White Hodge, and Daniel is a professor at North Park and also a hip-hop scholar and an author. Uh, so Daniel, you kind of function in a lot of different roles in life. Um, <clears throat> I heard you before, right, be, or as we were uh, getting prepared for this call, you were talking to, you, or to one of your children about uh, making sure that the oatmeal stays nice and warm for, uh, I think, for your wife, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so uh, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a parent, you're a, you're a partner and a, a husband, uh, so you do a number of different things in the world. But I'm also wondering, who is Daniel White Hodge to Daniel White Hodge? Oh, man. Um, man, who's Daniel White Hodge to Daniel White Hodge? That's, uh, that's a good question. You were right, man. That's a, that's a really <laughs> good question. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the last decade has really been a, a journey and discovery dealing with uh, aspects of my own uh, interpersonal, introspective life. Um, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD back in the early 2000s. And so, you know, ironically, at a conference. And so Ooh. I, you know, I, I just trying to figure out what that meant and, you know, try to understand, you know, just how I in turn see myself. And I think I'm finally to a place now after years of therapy, after years of just self-discovery and trying to work through all that that I'm, I'm getting more comfortable in my skin, oddly enough, mm. in my mid-40s, you know, and just being, you know, as they say, you love yourself. Like, I've, you know, heard that expression, but really loving, and not just the good parts. I mean, I think that's sometimes, you know, the 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 mistake that a lot of us do. We want to we wanna honor the, and love the, the great parts. Oh, I'm great at this, or I'm good at this. These are my skills and talents. But also the, the, the bad and the ugly, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like, how do you embrace that? You know, and my, my first therapist, Ron Hammer, he... Uh, he would always say, he said, you know, how do you how do you love your ugly? How do you love your, you know, the 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 stuff that you don't want other people to see and stuff, man? And I'm like, man, that it took me a while to get my head around that. And so, you know, really coming to a place where I can really identify with that and with that aspect of, you know, who I am and stuff, man. So I would say, you know, who's Daniel Hodge? I mean, I'd say I'm in I'm 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 a work in progress, as as a lot of us are. Um, I'm somebody who is a realist, somebody who uh, wants to you know, has a strong need for passion, but wants to see justice, wants to see equity. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, it, yeah, I do. I have a daughter, I have a wife, and then trying to balance, not even balance, I don't even know that's the right word, but ha trying to have some kind of a rhythm um, in terms of a, uh, a life, you know. And so, you know, like recently I just got back into, you know, recording and music and everything. Mm. And so that was kind of my first love. And so, you know, doing that, uh, doing, you know, creative stuff. I'm an Enneagram 4, so yeah. all this creative stuff and everything. So, I'm a 4 as well, man. Oh, all right. Come on. 4s unite, man. That's there right. You go. <laughs> so, uh, so all those things, right, they come together and kind of make me who I am. And so, again, I'm just, I'm getting to a place where I'm just, I'm, I'm digging that and loving that more. So you recently wrote a book called Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. And I was curious, what was something that you learned while writing that book that was unexpected or was a surprise? Wow. I mean, I think, so it was like this. I mean, I, that book, I actually started that book prior to the 2016 election. And, oh, okay. you know, it was, you know, I mean, if I'm honest, it was just a standard evangelical fluffy, like, all right, we'll talk about missions, we'll talk about race and everything. And then the 2016 election happened, and I was about 150 or so pages in, and I was just like, I can't write this. Mm. I, there's, there's no way I can write this crap, man. I mean, this is just, 
So I literally scrapped all that mess and just started from, you know, from the gut, man, and just started from a place of uh, lament um, and just a, a, a it was it, it was a place of not so much discovery, but as much of, of, of just writing from the from the heart and really just saying, OK, this is this is the way it is. And so, you know, at the beginning of the book, I say, you know, this is not a book that's going to have answers, you know, and I think that's kind of the standard christianese book right it's like you know even when i did the solo hip-hop you know it was there was still kind of some like little hope at the end and so this one i really wanted to say this is the way it is right now like mm. i really wanted to my realist side really wanted to come out and say this is this is this is how bad it really is i mean and this is this is where we've come from um this is where we are and this is in it continues on this trajectory this is where we're going to end up so there is no necessarily quote unquote happy ending. And I and for me, I don't want to rush to that happy ending. I think we've tried to do that mm-hmm. uh too often, especially in, in publishing. So um I just left it at that. And my, and I was great. I was very fortunate enough to work with a, a an editor, Al Shu, uh at IVP, um, who was just with it, man. And he was just like, yeah, no, I'll bring it, man. And so because that's that hinges a lot on that, right? It's like you're cause I wasn't sure how my editor was gonna take it. Uh, when I was writing this, and I was like, "Oh man, this is you know, this can either be a make it or break it type of thing." You right. know, where folks come in and be like, "Nope, can't say that," and "Oh, how come it's not more cheerful at the end?" But he was just like, "No, nah, bring it, man." So, and he's an ethnic minority, so I and he really understands um, what that means, which I think what I try to find is very important um, in publishing. But that's a whole other conversation. So yeah, that for me was a whole revolutionary way of looking at things because I, you know, if you had told me, you know. A while back, man, you got to get 150 pages in, you got to scrap it. I would have been, no, man, it's 150 <laughs> pages. Let me, let me try to save some of that. And I was just like, nope, I ain't going to say none of that. What did you learn about yourself while writing the book? Um, I would say just the ability to, um, to, to I mean, I, I mean, I think in person I can, you know, it's one thing to say to keep it real, but it's like, you know, writing and keeping that, keeping your audience in mind as you write and keeping, you know, uh, some 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 questions in tension, right? Like for me, for me as a writer, I try to keep, you know, like if somebody, if I'm trying to have conversations with, you know, the naysayers, like, well, how did that happen? And how did that, you know, you know, why, why would that be the case? And so, you know, okay, how do I footnote that? How do I really, you know, support that? I mean, I think for me, it was really seeing the data. I mean, a lot of this stuff is data-driven. I mean, as mm-hmm. a, you know, as a scholar, as a researcher, I mean, this is, and this is in there in academic wise. So I wanted to kind of, you know what I kind of I came at that level and um so for me it was about seeing the data in a different realm and allowing it to speak um in a way that it hadn't spoke before um and that for me was 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 good and and something that I want to continue to apply um as I as I write you know further and as I continue to develop my own scholarship That's the only way it can be. And the next thing you see, and it's me on TV. And I got the mask on and I'm robbing the bank. You can't tell on the tank and I'm running the shit. I'm a boy, what is up? Me, I'm annoyed, yo, I don't give a fuck. I'm chasing these dreams like you know what I mean. And I'm gonna get it, get it, get it every way beat. Throughout the book, you use this term post-soul. Describe what you mean by post-soul and how does it, how is it similar and how is it different than postmodernism? Ah, yes. 
Well, I mean, the term is really, uh, so Nelson George and Mark Anthony Neal were really kind of some of the, the first initial, you know, scholars to really put the put that term out. Uh, George, uh, George Nelson actually writes, you know, a few different books on the Poso Nation, Poso uh, Generation. Mark Anthony Neal, who's a professor at Duke, um, and he was really the one to kind of like, put this into a kind of musical scape. And so mm-hmm. as I was looking at that, I mean, when I was doing my master's, you know, I, my, my focus was on postmodern philosophy and theology. But one of my frustrations with that was that it really didn't include any ethnic minorities whatsoever. You right. know, we're talking about, OK, if we're going to mention the 60s and, you know, the revolution and people pushing back. Not once was, you know, the civil rights movement ever talked about or not mm. once was, you know, um, how Malcolm X and how folks were beginning to question the meta narrative, and so I, I knew I needed to find something, and this 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 came around, and so the post soul is yes, it's talking a little bit more about that shift, that cultural and socio theological, socio political um, shift that we had in the '60s, but it's really focusing more on particularly the African American experience mm-hmm. and what that looked like, and so it's looking at Aretha Franklin, God rest her soul. If you mm-hmm. you were on there uh, the other day, you know, watching ceremony it was seven and seven and a half hours mm-hmm. that, that was awesome but it's looking at how those from the previous generation i would say the demarker for that would really be around anyone born after like 1969 to 1971 that era was really the ending of the civil rights era really the ending of of, of seeing elders in your community and having like that connection with them, right? I, I, like I mm. talk about in the book, you know, this idea of singularized leadership, right? And from, particularly for the African-American and Latinx communities, we had one leader, right? It's like you have MLK, so people can go to that. After like 1971, once all those leaders were either killed, uh, sent to jail, or sent off into exile, you really have the birth of a new generation that was raised in the womb of media culture, really the, the birth of popular culture during the late 70s and early 80s. MTV comes online in 1981. And so you start to see a new cultural shift. Uh, Hip-hop is gaining traction now. You know, now hip-hop is emerging right around that time. 1972 is really the... the, that most scholars would agree that um, really the emergence of, of what we now know is, is, is hip hop is born mm-hmm. and really comes out. And it comes out of that generation that was really children of the civil rights folks, if that makes sense. And so the post soul is beyond, it's, 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 it's beyond the soul era, which the soul era was Marvin Gaye, right. Donnie Hathaway, and, and you know artists like that, Stevie Wonder. And if you notice, especially early hip-hop, it samples from that. But it takes that music and uses it in a way that it was never really meant to be used before. And, you know, there was always controversy at the beginning and stuff and whatever, and, you know, and hip-hop morphs. But it was just always interesting to hear that, you know, that early music of hip-hop, particularly sampling the soul era. Mm-hmm. It was really speaking, like, man, we want that connection. We want that, 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 um, we still want to be involved, but this is a different era. I mean, as Tupac used to say, it's like, you know, our generation, you know, that the older generation grew up B.C., before crack, you know, and like once crack entered the black and brown communities, man, it just changed everything. And so the postal mm-hmm. speaks to that, if that makes sense. <laughs> totally. So let's get into your bread and butter. How right. has theology influenced the development of hip hop? Well, I mean, I think so in my hip hop class, I, you know, I take um, um, hip hop history and I take it all the way back to really 5th and 6th century Africa. I mean, the elements of hip-hop, the, hmm. the construct of, of what hip-hop is, 
can be traced all the way back there and then you can kind of walk through it um all the way up to the modern day if you think about it like a volcano right so you got the lava and it's developing and developing and then 1972 it kind of just bursts out mm. into the public scene um so i think when you think about it like that theology god has always been in the midst of that mm -hmm. you know been in the midst of dance right it's always been in the midst of djing um when you think about a dj what a dj is a dj is really just somebody who is keeping the tempo keeping the beat keeping the rhythm going which is essentially crucial when you're dealing with i mean if you think about like okay we're going to cast out a demon we're going to count I me mean, exorcisms don't look like the exorcisms in the movie right mm -hmm. you know in in ethnic minority context oftentimes i mean that's really kind of a uh, um, a European Eurocentric uh, way of looking at the devil. And so music was a large part of casting out evil spirits or casting away. And so hmm. that's an element. That's an element of a part of hip hop, right? It's like, we're going to, we're going to transcend what we're in right now to go to another level. The spirit is talking to us through music. The spirit is talking to us to the MC, which is really a modern day pastor, right? Hmm. Um, when you think about break dancing, I mean, are you kidding me? Dancing is, is, huge man and in in all in all cultures really but particularly when it comes to ethnic minorities those who have been enslaved so many of the modern dances came out of the enslavement period in this country right you know when mm -hmm. you think about Cumbia or or marchata or um, and and uh just even twerking for that matter i mean all those things have a connection to hip-hop and god um, mm. and, you know, and I think that's part of what Western Christianity and particularly evangelicalism has done is it's, it's taken away those elements, called them evil, right? It's like, oh my gosh, how can those young people do that? How can, I mean, again, dance was just, it was just a normal part of thing. I mean, we, we, we read that in the Bible, right? It's like da David danced until his clothes fell off. So we can't overlook the power of what that is. And so it, hip hop possesses all those elements. And so then when you start to look at hip hop much closer, then you start to see elements of what. Christ was even talking about self-consciousness, awareness, know who you are, talking about, you know, the critique, the strong critique about money and being, you know, consumed with that, um, you know, working with the poor, working with the folks who are, I mean, hip hop starts amongst poor people, amongst people who couldn't afford, right, um, classes that were, you know, you know, uh, uh, classical art or whatever. So, so it's like people had to figure out how do we get this music out? Maybe just even using our bodies, you know, beatboxing, mm -hmm. for example, you know, or how do we how do we use what's already inside of us um, to create this? And so, man, that for me is 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 very spiritual, very theological, uh, and very grassroots, and it has a lot of connections even back to the early church uh, and the Bible and stuff. And so, for me, that was just a it was a connection. I mean, it took me a while to get there. I came out <laughs> of a fundamentalist background, and so it was you know I you know I came out of that whole all that secular and you know we can't you know we can't have a conversation about that. Um, and uh, it took me a while, but once I started seeing some of those overlays, it was definitely, uh, definitely apparent and definitely good. Let them make it to at least 85, so that they can meet the boy that thrive. Made it all the way in the up to the sky. You know what it is in the boy, I wonder why. And we going in, we going in, we going in hard. And maybe, maybe, maybe I was born to spit bars. This is the part where it all goes down. I ascend the throne and put on the crown. Picture in my life, playing shows. I wonder how the fuck far all this could go. I to ground your missiological work later in the book, you first talk about hip-hop Jesus. Who is hip-hop Jesus? 
<laughs> hip hop Jesus. Um, hip hop Jesus is just really a um, it's a contextualized version of hip hop, right? I mean, when I, I you know I tell the story all the time when I talk about the hip hop Jesus, like man, you know Jesus came from the hood, right? He had baby mm-hmm. mama. Um, he had a, a strong mouth. Some would say a foul mouth. You know, one of his boys did him in. It's like, man, that's the story of hip hop, right? It's like that's the the drama. I mean, that's it. I mean, Jesus for me was really um, a a figure in the Bible that that stands out. Not just because he was prophesized about, but he was he was somebody who was just a he disrupted culture in a way. Uh, that you know, that's the way I think hip hop is done. It's always disrupted and 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 mm. made those who were comforted uh, uncomfortable, right? And I think that's part of what the gospel does. It just it, it shook things up. I mean, we read the narrative of Jesus closely. He was constantly shaking things up, constantly going at going against the grain, going against the norm, pissing mm-hmm. people off. You know, going in and and whipping people in the church, right? You know, he's quote unquote healing on the Sabbath. I mean, so it was just like, whoa, here's this person that we thought was supposed to be this holier than thou, but he's, I, I don't know, I don't mean nothing. That's why, you know, it's like even John records, it's like, you know, he's talking about, you know, people are like, okay, so what's the way, you know, to the heaven? And he's just like, man, you gotta, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, whoa, Jesus, like that, you, you crazy, man. You like, <laughs> you, you talking about some stuff that's some zombie stuff, like hell nah, you know? And so, you know, John, again, he records that, you know, many who were with him departed and were with him no more. And so, that is for me. I think that's part of that that hip hop tradition. And granted, you know, Jesus wasn't calling it no hip hop, but it was. It was. You see that image in Jesus. He was again. He was a disruptor, and that's really a large part of what the core of of, of what hip hop culture is about is disrupting. Mm. Um, and you know, and doing that in a, in a theological manner, doing that in a way where others can see the light, quote unquote. Um, but yes, I think the narrative of Jesus and the the the, the just who he was as a person in the, in the Bible uh, stands to, you know, for, for a large part of what, what a lot of young ethnic minority folks are trying to do right now. You frequently reference Tupac as an older artist and Kendrick Lamar as a current artist in your book. What ways do Tupac and Lamar in their lyrics and in the way that they create their music reflect the image of hip hop Jesus? Oh my gosh, man, that's, um, all right. Well, Tupac, he was my um, he was my dissertation. I mean, so I looked at Tupac, mm. um, looking at him, how, you know, somebody in, in a modern day sense, look at. Well, in fact, I got the idea from a Ph.D. I was taking some prereq courses and there was a Ph.D. student, T.A., and, you know, he was you know, he was like, oh, I'm doing my Ph.D. in the theology of Henry now. And I was like, huh. Well, what if I took now, ain't nothing wrong with Henry now? And I said, but what if I took that and just put Tupac in there? And so um. <laughs> That was my dissertation, looking at him, engaging with what is, right? A lot of that's post-soul talk came from came from that work. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be um, black, young, uh, talented? Um, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't, quote unquote, a college educated man. I mean, he was, <laughs> you know, he, he dropped out in the 10th grade and stuff. Mm. So what then does that say about this person? Um, who is continuing to change lives. I mean, you've got young people right now who weren't even alive or around when uh, he was, he was uh, 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 you know, alive. 
who still reverence him and, and connect with him. So I was like, okay, this guy is a saint in his own right. I mean, hmm. many in the inner city and many in the, well, inner city, I mean, that's a, that's a vague term, but I would say many in impoverished areas have connected with Tupac uh, because he was somebody who gave you what it is and the good, the bad, and the ugly, he, get, he gave it to you. And he wasn't afraid to give you his own sins, like to tell you, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. He was one of those revolutionary spirits that, wasn't concerned about the fame or the money. And I know that's odd to say. Yes, he had moments of that. And yes, there were moments of him, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a human, so obviously, and he would be the first to tell you, don't follow me. Mm. I'm, I fall through the cracks, you know, follow God. Like, you know, that I'm not the one to be following. So the, all of that stuff was just of interest to me, man. I was like, man, I got to, you know, go deeper. And so thankfully I was able to get a hold of, you know, on my, my research and, and, and process, you know, during my dissertation, you know, talking to, you know, former roommates. Unfortunately, I was never uh, able to get to Feeney and God rest her soul. She passed before I, you know, I made an house going to make another attempt because I have a, a book on Pac coming out, hopefully at the uh, end of the year hmm. uh, called Baptized in Dirty Water. And so, um, and so I was hoping to get, you know, an interview with her, but unfortunately she passed. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I mean, there are still people who look at Pac like, and they revere him as somebody would revere a saint. And so that was, again, that for me was, was powerful. And it's, and it's, and, and it's a figure uh, the figura, if you will, you know, in 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 the in the, the the Central African context, it's like you know the figura of Christ is really the 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 central you know form of deity. Like, how do we look at the spirit moving among people and stuff? And so, um, a lot of folks have said, man, you know, Tupac has continued his legacy, you know, by the work that he mm. laid out. So, man, you know, we we can't overlook that. What uh, what about Lamar? Now, Lamar, I think, so Lamar is interesting, and I talk about this in the book as well, but, you know, Lamar had his, had people lay hands on this brother, and so, it like Snoop and Dre, uh, the Watts Prophet, so a lot of these West Coast folks, folks that, you know, people that haven't even ever, you know, people haven't even seen uh, or heard of, mainly, just, you know, that, that are only known on the West Coast, but they are in themselves hip-hop moguls on the West Coast, they had this gathering, they saw who Kendrick was, I mean, and they laid hands on this cat and told him, man, you're carrying on the mantle. If mm. you listen closely to, to Kendrick's, you know, work and his interviews, right, so that those two go hand in hand, he is essentially picking up a lot of the conversation that Tupac had mm. when he's talking about, you know, talking about, you know, women being raped and beaten by the police and, and being taken advantage of, being prostituted out. Man, that's Brenda's, you know, Brenda's baby. I mean, that's that's essentially the continuation of that of, of that narrative. You know, when, when, when Kendrick is talking about depression and talking about, you know, suicide thoughts, I mean, that's a continuation of Tupac talking about, you know, you know, so many tears and, and you know, how do I deal with, you know, what's going on right now in my life if I'm living this certain way? Um, you know, when you've got Kendrick... And he, you know, even has a conversation with him, right at the end of um, oh that album, the um, the all the brothers are sitting in front of the White House too. I loved it, man. That, that was a oh man, I'm to I'm to, to pimp a butterfly. There you go. At the end of that album, right, um, he you know he has this conversation with Tupac. I mean that, and and it's like Pac is sitting right there in the room with them and again mm. that's just to show you these two are intertwined they're connected now i think the differences and this is the stuff that you know shows up in interviews you know kendrick's like man i'm not trying to get killed by you know by my mid-20s like i, I want to live so how can i improve where tupac failed mm. how can i how can i do things that are different 
so that I can continue because Tupac would have done a lot more had he lived, had he not got caught up in that. He said, so I don't want to get caught up in that. And he, and, you know, and for the most part, he hasn't. I mean, this brother's been with the same woman. He's been like, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be married. You know, so he has a different narrative and he's trying to carry on this legacy um, that, you know, essentially Tupac started. I mean, and he talks about, you know, Brother Pac, he talks about, you know, when, you know, he would hear about Tupac coming to concerts and being connected with him and stuff, man. So there is an intertwining, there's an interconnection with Kendrick Lamar. And I really do call him the post-soul uh, rapper, the post-soul mm. hip-hop, you know, the hip-hop icon. Um, of this of this generation and don't get me wrong i still love j cole and common and all those cats most deaf um or hey i guess he's he yasi Bain. you know he's not not necessarily most deaf anymore but um you know he he is representative of what tupac i believe would have wanted in a a next generation rapper briefly mention about Kendrick Lamar's engagement or frustration rather with the church and how Black Lives Matter often meets on Sundays. What is it about Kendrick Lamar's frustration with the church and what is it about groups like Black Lives Matter that meets the spiritual needs of the communities it serves that churches do not? Man, I mean, and this is right, this is one of the this is one of the rips and tears that happen, you know, between the soul and the post soul. Um, a few weeks back, I was in Atlanta teaching a doctoral cohort, um, and you know, we we you know we, we we get out, we go into the city, we hang out. I mean, you know, Atlanta's historical, uh, and this was this was African American. This was an African American church um, leadership cohort for you know doctoral students, and so uh, we went to the King Memorial, we went to King's birth home, and. We talked with some of you know some of the civil rights leaders that were actually walking with King and all this stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that struck me was their disdain and strong critique of Black Lives Matter, hmm. um, and just the complete disconnect between all. And I have to say, I mean, all of them said, "Oh, they're unorganized and they're this, and they don't have this and they don't have that." And, and I didn't say anything because I was like, "Well, this is not the time and space to say anything." But I'm just like, "You've missed, you've missed a lot of what they've been trying to do." Most Black Lives Matter organizations are very organized. They have an agenda. They understand the broader implications. But Black Lives Matter is also forefronting Black trans lives, Black queer lives, mm -hmm. Black, you know, LGBT. I mean, so so this is the movement right now, right? I mean, in, in fact, uh, the Black Youth Project, BYP 100, um, you know, they put it on their website. They were like, the movement right now is being led by a trans or queer um, person right now, you know. And that's a major difference because in the civil rights movement, it was really men. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was plenty of women. Mm -hmm. But even in those conversations, they were talking about how, you know, they used to share money and put money into a pot and everything. There was even then a discrimination between how men got paid. I think the men got paid $25 um, a week and the women got paid $15 a week. Mm. So even that, and so Black Lives Matter says, no, we're going we, we're gonna to try to fix that. We got to, you know, we can't, we can't continue this, this patriarchy that's, that's, that's crippled us. And 
so there's a major, major difference between that. And so I would say Black Lives Matter is comprised of Gen Y, Gen Z, some millennials, um, black and millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, uh, that are just like, man, we're, we want action. We want, how do we actually put these things into, into work and continue the legacy and we'll work with folks but there's a major disconnect, in, you know, between the older generation that that didn't grow up in the crack environment, didn't grow up in a popular culture mantra, didn't grow up in an era where the internet and Wi-Fi and all that is on every corner. Mm-hmm. Those things add a different different side or a different take to how we understand life in general. That's a worldview changer. Uh, and I mean, I can definitely see the places where, you know, things overlap, but, you know, you've got older folks wanting to tell younger folks, and this is continued through history, right? You know, how do I act, how to live? And BLM is just like, look, man, I'm not, I'm not about that. You know, and there's a growing number of BLMers that say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with the church. The mm. church ain't done nothing. It's gotten our leaders killed. It's made us passive. It's made us, you know, less... Uh, um, um, it's it's made us less. It's made us more ignorant, I should say. Mm. It's made us less active and more ignorant um, to the issues. And so, uh, you know, there's a growing number. I mean, when I met with uh, um, you know, activists out in Ferguson, man, all of them, you know, were self-claiming atheists. They were just like, nah, man, I, you know, I, I don't. I don't see, you know, how God is, is, is a part of this. That's just a, you know, Karl Marx, right? It's like it's or Durkheim, right? It's like you know, it's a, it's the medicine of the people, right? It's like you know, it's the opioid of the mm. people. So it's like. There is that growing number. And so as a researcher, I'm interested. Um, as a Christian, I'm like, oh, man, you know, I'm always thinking like, right, right? Like, how, do, how, do, how do we work this and fix it? And, and I don't know. I don't know if it is fixable. That's the thing, because there is a growing more and more growing number. Um, it may not necessarily atheists, but growing number of humanists, Gnostics um, uh, in the African-American community that um, really was predicted back in 1991 by uh, a book that's you know a lot of folks haven't read. It's called the uh, African American Experience, or the, no, the Black Experience in the African American uh, Church. And so, um, and it really talked about you know some of the changes coming. It really was one of the first uh, academic studies that looked at uh, the, some of the changes that had happened after you know the Soul Generation and stuff. And so, all that to say, man, I just think yes, Black Lives Matter in the spiritual sense, it places consciousness, places awareness, and just that basic need of like, man, I just need help. Like, I need somebody to be with. I need somebody to engage with uh, that unfortunately just isn't there. And, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the previous generation isn't there because so many of them are locked up. So many mm-hmm. of them are dead. Um, and so that is a major thing that uh, BLM is trying to work on and, and figure out as well. How do we orientate ourselves to understand evangelism not as proselytizing, but as social protest? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> ah, I mean, that's a good question, man. I mean, I, <laughs> I, mean it, I don't think this is a simple answer, right? I mean, so I'm an educator, and so I'm in the classroom, mm. you know, and trying to help young people figure out what does it mean just to be just? What does it mean to live in, in a world? So we're all going to be different. No one's, you know, I'm not saying we need to, and I tell students at the beginning of the class, like, look, I'm not trying to make little prodigies out of you. Like, you know, but I am here to help you critically think through some things. So I can't just be like, oh, you know, 
Black Lives Matter is a, you know, let's use them for example. You know, Black Lives Matter is a, you know, they're a secular organization and they don't have no God in them. Like, okay, well, hold up, hold up, hold up. Where, where did you get that? Have you gone to a meeting? Have you talked with anybody? What has been your experience? What is your data, <laughs> right? Um, so much of that, we've lost a baseline for what truth is. I mean, we really have, right? And so now we're just, and don't get me wrong, again, this is another conversation, but that was that was done uh, as a rhetorician by trade. That was done intentionally. Um, but again, that's, next time you have me on, we, we can talk about that. <laughs> um, but it, um, you know, we, we have lost a sense of just common decency, um, you know, and, you know, one of the downsides of being plugged in all the time with our devices and everything is that it it causes us to then lose a large aspect of civility. Because if I'm going to curse you out, if I'm going to call you a name, if I, if I do that face to face, I have to look at you. I have to see your reactions. I have to look you face to face. But on, on the Internet, I don't have to do any of that. You're just another, you know, zero or one, you know, showing up in some, mm. you know, visual engine. So I can just go off on you. And then that essentially carries over into other parts of life. And so it's a challenge being an educator right now because we're growing up in a generation. I mean, there's a commercial that says um, the job, you know, the, the kids today are preparing for jobs that yet don't yet exist. Well, I think it's the same thing that we as faith leaders, we as people who are in education, we're trying to prepare kids for an environment that we don't even know ourselves. And that's a major difference that has happened uh, here in the early 21st century is that we don't have a beacon of what will become. Like prior to the rise of the Internet and media and, you know, and, and digital technology and did the digital world, we kind of had an understanding, right? You go to school, get you a degree get you a job, and then you work your, you know, you work your life, and you, and you do your thing, you retire, hopefully your kids do better than you. Um, now, as ethnic minorities, we know that's not always been the case. We, you know, we've only been free, really, you know, 50 or some odd years and stuff mm. in terms of that, really, really free. So when you combine that, when you combine the fact that the world no longer is as big as it was, we know what's happening in India right now, we can look that up, we can connect with that. If there's a storm happening, we can see it in real time. Those are that's good and bad at the same time. It causes like one young person told me it's like, man, you know, I see so many people get killed on the internet. It's like you just become desensitized to mm. see so many of that. So that has an effect. That has an effect of on people, right? It has an effect on how we engage, and so all that um, is challenging. Um, you have people in the church who want to get back to the olden days. We're not going back to the old days. It's, mm. it's, we're, we're done with that. I mean, the idea of going out and giving somebody a track and evangelizing, that is gone. Um, that is, we're over. We are done with that. And so we have to figure out, like, what that looks like. Uh, you know, okay, quote-unquote evangelism, we could use that term. But what, what does that look like in the 21st century? And I don't really know too many folks who have really figured that out. Um, it's like somebody was saying, I was like, you know, we're we're building the plane as we're flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet. <laughs> you know, we're, 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 but we're building it right and at the same time. And so it's like, what do we do? Where, where does this part go? Where does where does that go? And I think there's a lot of fumbling around um, with that. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge to answer that question. I mean, it's I think protest can be looked at now. I mean, I think there's, there's different forms of protest. I don't think it's just the marching and the posters and everything. I think those are great. Uh, but those were tactics that worked 
uh, well in the 60s when media was just coming online and people were just turning on their television sets and seeing this stuff. Now it's it, we're just used to seeing thousands of people. We're used to seeing police acting the way police do. Mm. And so it's really just background noise now. So that's the other thing. It's like we got to figure out another way of what does protest look like. So for me, protest is much more about policy changing. How do we get more ethnic minorities on campus and then keep them? Mm. Um, we change policies that were once designed to harm ethnic minorities. Those are hard, arduous, day in, day out tasks mm. that a lot of people don't have. Right? It's easy to when the cameras are there. It's easy to get arrested when the cameras are there because it's like, oh, yeah, look at me and this and this and that. Then you get a speaking deal, you get a book deal, and you go out and you make all these honorarians. But it's a much harder to do that work on the day to day in 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 an institution trying to change an institution. Mm. That's the job. That's protest, though. Or how in unbelief I learned to truly see the beauty of all that Jesus is supposed to be. We learned the meaning of brothers felt love from above and from others. Met creation in the station, felt elation, motivation, ready for the extermination of the worried about color generation. Just get up with my friends in the morning and we doing these things. Today we have our musical artist who is Brandon. Uh, and you call yourself Fresh Book Fresh Brook, right? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. What uh what inspired that name? And so actually uh, there's this thing I used to do when I was in high school called K Life and uh, one of it's kinda like Young Life, um, if you've ever heard of that. But uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, guys that was like in my small group, one of the leaders, he uh, just one day I walked in and he was like, yo, Freshbrook, what up? And I was like, that's it. That's it forever. Oh. And it was like ninth grade. And that's kind of been my nickname ever since. So because huh. my last name is Westbrook. So it was okay, just. Kind of, OK. I, yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see how it is. So I was having uh, trouble figuring out what category to put you in as like a musical genre. I was listening yeah. and I I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. How would you describe yourself musically? Where what maybe what category would you would you throw yourself in? Uh I've had to wrestle with that too cuz I don't know, but the best the closest thing I can I can think is uh I would call it experimental hip hop, I guess. Okay, that's and maybe where I was moving into, like some sort of experimental electronic yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I what uh, inspired that version of music? I mean, you were talking with me about like how you're a big Chariot fan. Why pick this versus you know something super heavy or something really indie or folky or whatever? You know, I uh, I feel like I can in a lot of ways trace back like the music I love to three major artists or bands like that I listened to when I was young. That'd be Coldplay, Creed, and <laughs> DC Talk. Really. And so, yeah, that's like where like like I feel like Coldplay inspires a lot of the like pretty and then it like pushed me towards heavy stuff and then the uh, um, DC Talk kind of is what pushed me into some hip hop stuff, you know. And okay. so uh, I uh, I grew up like with a pretty uh, good dose of being into all sorts of genres, and then so when it came time to make my own music, it was hard to pick. So I felt like I just threw everything at it, you know. Huh. That's so interesting. I would have never picked up on any three of those artists <laughs> in your music, but that's quite amazing that, you know, they're they're all influencers. 
Uh, speaking of influencers in your music, you were telling me the other day that you're a big Chariot fan. Uh, I've said before many times that the Chariot is the most, the single most influential entity in my life. I mean, they completely changed how I even experienced the world. So what is your, what is your liking of the Chariot? And how have maybe they influenced your music? Um, I, uh, so I had a roommate that got me into the chariot. Um, and then when we were, I think it was before we lived together, actually, the chariot was doing this show with Underoath, who was a band that I had seen multiple times already because mm-hmm. Underoath was a huge, probably my favorite band in that genre of just rip your face off kind of <laughs> music, you know? And, um, so I had, uh, I don't know if I'd listened to the chariot, uh, before I saw them, but then saw them and just like, it was raining and I was moshing and it was just, they were just the way they put on a live show is so like intense. It's kind of something that I would strive to do in some of my live work when I get to mm. play shows eventually and stuff. So yeah, yeah, they they're just kind of um they they like they're just so intense that it's hard to really like like match that intensity you know not many bands do yep i i'm I'm completely with you on that talk about some of the new stuff that you've been sending to me i know that this album isn't completely finished but what uh what are you most excited about with this album Man, just putting it out. Uh, this is going to be like the second time I put out music, but the first time I put out good music. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I recorded some stuff a few years ago before I really knew what I was doing. And then um, I think I got a little better at what I'm doing. And now I have a product that I'm really excited about. And uh, I just need to uh, finish paying for it and put it out. And then... Um, it's just kind of, I'm kind of stuck in a limbo phase uh, with um, getting it all uh, finished and produced. And, um, but once it's out, I just can't wait for people to hear it because I feel like I have like a complete, like nine songs, like this kind of complete vision that I had. And I'm excited to just show it to everyone, you know? Yeah. So one of those things I think you also should be excited about is you name dropped on me the other day and said that the flaming lips drummer is on this record what how how did that happen i know you're an oklahoma person i know the flaming lips are from oklahoma is that the connection yeah so this uh, isn't it nick lay he's the guy uh and he um he actually used to be in a band or still is in a band called color music but he used to uh be the keyboardist for them and then he continued on in music and he's a professor at acm but i've actually known him since i was 14 because he color music played at my 14th birthday Uh, and so yeah and so yeah they were this band from stillwater um, where i'm from and uh they played at that and then i've known nick ever since and then he was uh one of the he's a professor at the school i was at last year and then we kind of reconnected and i told him i'm recording this record and him and a few other uh, people from the school um, got in on it. Like the guy who produced it is the drummer for Charlie Hall. Uh, oh. You know, 
And then um, there's another dude, his name's Mitch, who plays guitar for a band called Zoo and another band called They. And he's he played guitar on some of the tracks and stuff. So there's some people with some much a lot more talent than me who played on it. And so it came together and sounded really awesome. That's awesome. Uh, you mentioned a little bit ago about potentially touring. Is that something that you're hoping to do with this album? Yeah, I'd love to. I have no idea how that's going to work because I have I'm in like such a strange limbo phase in life. Um, I was supposed to be in school for another two years, but then the state of Oklahoma was like, we're not paying for your loans anymore, man. So Mm. I had to drop that. And now I'm just trying to figure out like what I'm doing next. But if I can get this out and get some you know, attention on it, then maybe I'll be able to end up touring somehow. That's, that's the goal. That's the dream. I just don't know how it's going to go yet, but Mm -hmm. you know, the divine does his own thing, her own thing. So we'll see how it goes. Have you toured before and maybe like any other bands? I have, I have not toured. Uh, This would be the first time I've, I used to do like in college spoken word stuff around Stillwater, but I've and I did a little stuff in the city, but I've never toured my music. I uh, never took music seriously really until about two years ago. Like I always wanted to, but I was afraid mm. to. And then my brother's like a really talented musician. And so I was like, kind of like, felt like I have to be like that good before I try anything. And then I just started making music on my phone. Um, just on GarageBand and then from there it just I started writing and the stuff I started writing was like better than I thought I had done before and it just snowballed into this album you know what inspired some of the songs in this album I know you were talking about how some of them sort of revolve around days of the week what 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 maybe inspired that so I used to uh, there's this time in my life where like almost all of my best friends kind of lived in this one house and I didn't officially live there, but I was there four to five days a week. And, um, a lot of it, and a lot of it was on weekends and we would just be kind of doing our thing and, um, staying up late and and, and, um, I was kind of recovering from a breakup and kind of also rewiring, what I thought about God and religion and, and, um, relationships, uh, and dating. And, uh, I found like through this heartbreak, these like brothers. And then on top of that, this like new outlook on, um, like life, I guess. And I, I sort of came up with this idea to kind of try to mirror the feeling of what, like, if all of that, which took place over the series of a couple of months kind of happened like in terms of a weekend. Cause it was going on over a bunch of different weekends. And so it was like, all right, Friday morning, it starts with this heartbreak. And then mm-hmm. by like Sunday night, it's like this like revolution kind revolutionary kind of like, Oh, it doesn't have to be this way. It can actually be this way. You know, I don't have to be stuck here. I can be, changed and more whole and understand new ways of thinking and it all sort of wrestles with like growing up in the church and then like figuring out that some of that isn't exactly the way I want to live my life because there's a lot of issues there and then 
figuring out that I also do still love like parts of what I did learn in that and want to still incorporate parts of uh, um, Christianity, quote unquote, uh, in my life, you know, so. That's awesome. Um, yeah, thank you again for for sharing your music and uh, and for uh, all the work that you're doing in this world. This is just awesome. Right on, man. Thank you. Yeah. It's good to meet you. My podcast is called Religionless Church, which is a sort of play on words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Bonhoeffer or his work on Religionless Christianity, but how would you say that uh, Homeland Insecurity relates to Bonhoeffer's work, uh, especially of Religionless Christianity and its resistance to fascism and, and racism in Nazi Germany? Oh, man. I mean... I mean, that, I mean, that's mean. That is essentially what um, this generation, I think, is asking for. This religionless. Um, how do we come at the Bible in a fresh new way and strip it of the dogma that's been placed on mm. it? Strip it of the the rule base because that, none of that stuff works. I mean, that's the thing. It's like that's what gets me about. It. I'm not against conservatives and conservatism, but I, it it gets me. That, you know, when does it really work, like truly work, where somebody is just all ruled up and, you know, we're just trying to preserve this, we're trying to keep that. And I get the traditions, I get that we got to keep certain, you know, aspects of that. I'm all for that. But when those become the central figure, they really become an idol, rules and, and how we act, and this is not how God is act. That's And we're seeing the problems that we're seeing right now, right? It's mm. like you had generations raised on that, and then you hit a wall and you're asking yourself, whoa. That theology doesn't fit. Well, that's religion. And if we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus's life was not, I mean, it wasn't this pristine, just, you know, you know, great life where it was just, I mean, yeah, there were moments, but it's just like, no, Jesus had a mission. He was on it. Um, he died a miserable death. It's like, my gosh, you know, and then, of course, he rose on the third day. But none, nevertheless, by the time that had happened, so much other things had happened that most of us don't want to see, right? The day in, mm. the day out. Um, and I, I just think that, yes, absolutely, uh, uh, what, what this religionless world, I mean, this is exactly what, uh, I think, you know, organizations like Black Lives Matter, BYP 100, I mean, when you think about these movements that are being started by millennials, Gen Ys, Gen Zs, um, ethnic minorities, and they are essentially screaming that. And, mm -hmm. and I, I get that, that's, that rubs against fundamentalists, right? It rubs against people who want to hold on to the idea of rules, who want to continue that notion that, you know, we have to have rules in order to somehow be more holy. And I'm just like, 
I'm not saying let's be lawless and let's be ruleless, but here's the thing. I don't need a Bible to tell me that it's wrong to go and cheat on my wife. I don't need a Bible to tell me that it's wrong to go and kill people just at random. I don't, you know, that, and those are the things and those are the aspects I think of life that, you know, there are just, there are some baselines, right, about just common decency. People can, people figured that stuff out mm. long before there was the written word, quote unquote, of God. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd be very interested just to see, you know, how we engage with that. Because again, evangelism, engagement, all that stuff, and they still come with rules, right? Mm. So um, I'm all for the religionless. I, I hope we can figure that out. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, man. Well, uh, so I have a podcast called Profane Faith, uh, mm. and that's on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast at. And so those are weekly conversations around a lot of these topics as well and, you know, what that looks like. Um, that's at whitehodgepodcasts.com, uh, or you can just go to whitehodge.com and you can, you know, you can uh, find me there. And there's, you know, snippets of audio and, and whatnot and everything's there. And then, you know, if you just want to follow me on Twitter, I'm just at Dan White Hodge. Um, they, you know, you can come and I'm always on, on some rant or something like that. And so, you know, I'm on Facebook and all that. But again, if you go to whitehodge.com, you'll find everything there. My links to all my social media outlets and, um, uh, like I said, links to the podcast site and everything. So yeah, come, come check your brother out. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting about the new book and about your work. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Increase while you close your eyes through the mind of a butterfly sip tea on the moon as the stars collide drink wine on the grass with strawberry pie mcr on the bus when you want to die hide the fear in your eyes through your pride and lies when they stop getting high enough to realize every day the leaf turns over a new sunrise you had it all along you just had to visualize the energy the meditate the brain waves the elevate the energy the meditate the brain waves the levitate i hope that episode left you satisfied and fulfilled so much so that you have no desire to ever listen to another podcast episode of any show ever again. If you would like to connect with both Daniel and Freshbrook and their work, you can find the links in the description below. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. And when I get where I'm going, don't get sentimental. I want everything that I do to be monumental. The energy, meditate. The brainwaves, the elevate. The energy, the meditate. The brainwaves, the levitate. The energy, the meditate. The brainwaves. Oh, hear the angels sing, oh, hear the angels sing, you know what I mean, that diamond ring, that sunset, that 
Let that breathe and take this hit of oxygen. <laughs> 